Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care. And with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com. And see, that's that should have been the whole episode. Just a dissection of debutante balls in St. Louis. Maybe another yes, time. Yes, because all three of us have such expertise <laughs> with debutante balls in St. Louis. Say, I was going to say, Deep, know. deep expertise. I know one person who grew up in St. Louis. Uh, hey! <laughs> so obviously I discussed it in detail uh, <laughs> with my, my St. Louis sources. episode of the Beats on the Box Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias here with Emily Stewart, ProPublica's Derek Lind, uh, and we are going to talk about the economy in which uh, things are happening. I guess we've had a couple of somewhat disappointing uh, jobs reports over the past couple of months, um, which has led to you know a, a good amount of hue and cry as to exactly what's up with that, why has employment growth been slower than expected. Uh, but we also have a lot of stories of a situation that seems like a really hot uh, job market. Um, wages have gone up a lot for low-wage workers. Um, you see teenagers are getting jobs in a way that they haven't uh, throughout the 21st century. It, it reminds me of when, when I was a teen in the late 90s. 17-year-olds can just get hired to do random stuff. And so it's a it's a little bit of a, a paradoxical situation. I mean, you you have sort of one track in which it's a really hot economy, and you have another track where it's like, oh, there's still millions of unemployed people, and, you know, we're adding jobs, but not actually that fast. Um, and it's all, it's all kind of weird, Emily. <laughs> it is weird. I mean... My sort of overarching take on this is that it's kind of time to embrace that we aren't quite sure what's going to happen. Like, as annoying as it sounds to say we are in an unprecedented moment, we are, right? Like, we had a pandemic and everybody was like, we need to buy toilet paper, which two years ago I would not have thought, right? And so I think kind of the way I've at least been thinking about the jobs market and when I talk to... Um, economists, you know, I was talking to Nick Bunker at Indeed last week, and, and he said, listen, like, we might have just been too ambitious in how we thought that the economy could get better, how we thought that the labor market could improve. Like, there were all these estimates that we'd be seeing a million jobs a month. Uh, we haven't been there, right? We were at, like, 250,000 in April, you know, about 550,000 in uh, May. So, like, it's not a million jobs. That doesn't mean that we can't get there necessarily. But like we've never 
I mean, at least in the past century, we haven't had a labor recovery from a global pandemic. So if that's the most likely outcome, that like we were just a little bit optimistic about just how quick the recovery would be, like, do we have any sense of what needs to happen now for us to get back? Because it, it does, you know, it's not like vaccine uptake in the U.S. has been slower than anybody thought. It Certainly, we have plenty of evidence that the, the stimulus checks and relief to businesses, like, there isn't a lot of evidence that they failed to achieve their desired effect. So, like, what are we waiting for is kind of my first meta question about this to figure out where we actually are in a post-pandemic world. I mean, I feel like... You know, Emily was talking about we were maybe too optimistic. And I think I think there was like one group of forecasts that were too optimistic, right? It was people who they sort of looked at the number of job openings. They looked at the level of demand. They plugged it into their spreadsheets and they were like, man, we're going to get a million jobs a month, right? And that turned out to maybe not be true. It's maybe just like harder than that to fill vacancies because it's, you know, matching is hard, search is hard. But there was another level where there was too much pessimism, I think, right? And that was, if you look at the the rescue plan, I, or maybe this wasn't even pessimism, but I, I guess the most generous way to put it is that they were deliberately felt that the risks were asymmetrical, right? And that if the economic situation looked really, really weak, that it was going to be very difficult to like come back in June and say, okay, we need to get more money to help people out, that they had this shot. And so they went with a really big bill. And I think you can find quotes with Joe Biden saying like, you know, it's the, the risks of doing too much are smaller than the risks of doing too little. Mm. And so when you have that mentality, and it's not just like something you say, but it's like actually how you design your policy, you wind up with a situation like you have right now where I think you look in retrospect and you say, yeah, like we did too much, right? That like the stimulus checks went out. Demand is very, very, very strong. Uh, there are tons and tons of job openings. And there are now actually a, a new uh, a jolts number came out just as we were hitting record on this. Uh, so there's 9.3 million job openings in the country, uh, which is the most on record. Uh, now, the records don't go back that far, but still, like, it's it's a lot. And the quits rate is up to 2.7% uh, because people are seeing that they can quit their job and get a better job and get a raise uh, because there's lots and lots and lots of demand. And, you know... In retrospect, if you had taken a few hundred billion dollars worth of short-term spending and it put that into something else, right, like something that wouldn't have gotten spent out until next year or maybe was on a some kind of big project that wouldn't pay off until four years from now, you know, refurbishing the electrical grid to be more sustainable, something like that, you'd say, okay, that would be fine. Like if we had a little bit less demand right now, that wouldn't necessarily be doing anything to hurt the economy and we could have had other trade-offs. But the thinking in January, which I agreed with in January, was that like, we don't really know. Like we didn't know that vaccine production would ramp up. We didn't know that reopening would go so well from a public health standpoint with like no additional wave, no additional shutdowns, things like that. 
And it was thought that it was better to sort of hit the accelerator as hard as possible. And now this is what you've what you've got. I mean, I'm not I'm not like really a car guy, but um, when you hit the accelerator as hard as possible, <laughs> weird stuff happens to your car. Like it's not actually meant to be operated that way, right? And and the economy's now in a somewhat I don't know. I mean, it's. It, it, it's unprecedented in the course of any of our careers to have an economy that is like fully stimulated from a demand perspective. Right. I mean, I still will say though, I feel like I maybe I'm wrong here, but it feels early to me to like declare that we did too much or too little. Like we don't know. And I guess like I'm curious, Matt, like where do you shave off the money then? Like for somebody who's like, hey, like this stimulus check is actually the difference between me being able to like pay my rent or not or something like that, you know? Well, I mean, you know, I think the obvious one is the unemployment insurance, which, Mm -hmm. you know, I mean, now a lot of Republicans are cutting, but, you know, they created this program where you would get, you know, so back in the CARES Act, right? The Mm -hmm. idea was, Okay, there's going to be so few employment opportunities that we totally throw incentive concerns out the window. And we're just going to use the unemployment insurance program to get relief to people who are in need. And it was a huge success, right? The pandemic was a very difficult time, but the poverty rate went down rather than up. And, you know, people did studies and because Republicans said at the time of the CARES Act, they were like, this is terrible. This is going to crush the economy. We're giving too much money to the unemployed. Uh, but I think people who looked at it and say, you know, that didn't happen, right? That job search intensity fell, but like the number of job openings fell so much that it didn't matter. Like every job that an employer wanted, somebody, you know, was willing to take for, for whatever reason. Uh, so we took that mentality forward into the rescue plan. And, you know, if we had stalled out the pace of vaccinations at where it was uh, in January, I think we'd be really glad that we had kept that bonus unemployment insurance in place because job openings would still be anemic. This would be the only way for people to survive. Uh, But we achieved like a big acceleration in vaccinations. Every state, I mean, D.C., New York, they've lifted a lot of almost all the restrictions on activity. People are going back to restaurants. People are trying to hire. And at this point, um, like it does matter. The, the incentive impact matters and not I, I want to put this the right way because sometimes it can sound like you're saying, oh, you know, people are like living the high life on unemployment insurance and, and that's terrible. Um, the issue isn't that the benefits are so generous. It's that you lose the benefits if you take a job. Right. I mean, that's a weird way to structure a program. Right. Like we we have different phase outs and things like that. But like if the way Medicaid worked was that if you earn one dollar of income, you lose all your Medicaid benefits like that would be shitty. Like that's not a good way actually to help people if you are expecting to have an economy that grows and where job opportunities exist. But pandemic UI came out of like a pandemic in which job opportunities weren't existing. Now they are. Uh, But I mean, this whole issue is going to go away like really soon. Well, it's going to go away for some people at the end of this week and some people in (laughs) In September. And like, right. And I do think like, I mean, (laughs) I think it's hard to like, I understand what 
Republican governors are doing, to be fair, I like don't agree with it. I think especially getting rid of some of the, the unemployment insurance for gig workers, that that just goes away entirely, right? There's nothing like at the end of in four days in some states, right? But I do think like we told people it was going to be here through September. And like whatever you think of that, like how do you, you know, we talk all the time about how Wall Street doesn't like uncertainty and you just need big business to like know the rules of the road. So why don't we have those same rules for average people? Like, I do think like we can sit back and be like, maybe it was too much. But, you know, last week or the week before I did a bunch of reporting talking to people on unemployment insurance, specifically in Texas, who are about to lose their jobs. And like, what I wasn't hearing from a ton of people is like, oh, yeah, I'm just hanging out at home. And obviously it's a small sample size. But you talk to people. I talked to one woman who lost her job as an office worker. She was in her 50s. And she was like, I've sent out like 100, 200 resumes. Nobody responds because I'm in my 50s and I'm older. And so I think sometimes like we have sort of assumed that there's going to be this like endless pool of low-wage workers, right? And maybe, like, people have had a year to kind of think, like, actually, my restaurant job sucked, or actually, I still need to pay my mortgage, and my mortgage is not gone if I take a job making $10 an hour when I used to make $60,000 a year. Like, I think it's a little bit tricky, and it's it's easy to sit, like, I can sit at home and be like, that's maybe too much for you, but I also didn't lose my job in the pandemic. I do think it's really worth diving into this. I mean, certainly on the kind of the the flip side, the kind of the green shoot side of the question, right? Because there is this kind of developing discourse where on the one hand, there are lots of trend stories about like businesses either having trouble hiring or succeeding in hiring because they've ra- raised wages. And on the, on the flip side, the kind of the restaurant workers that you're talking about, Emily, who are saying, you know, I've really reconsidered whether the job that I had before the pandemic is something that is actually going to be long-term sustainable for me as a human being. And that's created a certain amount of econ 101 splaining among, I think, some like online commentators where it's, you know, the assumption is that if employers would only pay enough, then there wouldn't be any kind of mismatch between, you know, the openings that are coming up and the people who, you know, who who aren't willing to take those jobs. But I think it's worth thinking about the uncertainty on both sides, right? There is, on the one hand, the fact that people were given assurances about how long their UI would last, which, you know, or which seems like that's a good starting point for, okay, I have X amount of time to reconsider what kind of job I want on the other side of this and not take the first thing that's offered to me if I'm worried it's going to be abusive or it's going to be hazardous to my health. Uh, but on the other hand, there does appear to be a lot of uncertainty among employers, especially small businesses, not just about you know what they can afford to pay right now, but about how long the current situation is going to last, right? Like it doesn't seem like anyone's super confident that what we have now is a return to the roaring economy of like 2017, 2018, rather than a pent up rush of demand because there were a lot of things that people couldn't do for 15 months that they can do now. And that I think shapes a lot of assessments about like, can you afford to start paying really competitive wages for restaurant work? Maybe you can now, but maybe you can't six months from now and you don't want to put your employees in a situation where because you recruited them by paying them competitive wages in June, you have to shut down the whole business in September and everybody's out of work again. 
I guess like I, I always want to separate out two different aspects of this, right? You know, you read these stories and people are like, oh my God, nobody will take my job for $12 an hour. And it's like, okay, you know, like, fuck you, man. And if if 18 months from now, we're reading stories that are saying, oh, the quits rate is at an all-time high and small business owners are crying about how they can't fill vacancies, I'm going to just be up cheering and pumping my fist. Like, I have been toiling in the trenches of full employment is important uh, for like over a decade now. Um, and, you know, that that is the dream that we have been trying to create. You know, when something I say is um, right before the pandemic, there was a wave of stories about how in my neighborhood, a lot of restaurants were closing because rents were going up. And that's a kind of normal thing. Like, we're familiar with that happening in the gentrification cycle. And, you know, it can make us sad if we happen to like that restaurant. But it's like, it's what happens, right? And the dream is a world in which people go out of business because all of their employees walked off the job because they could go get a job someplace else. That's just not just a nice story for workers. Like, it's a story for the economy. It means that high-productivity employers are winning, low-productivity entrepreneurs are losing, and that we are advancing, like, human uh, betterment over time. What makes me not pump my fist about the current situation is that there's millions of unemployed people right now. Right. Like it's not actually a full employment economy. It's a kind of weird bottleneck. And I hope that like restaurant workers who are not jumping at the opportunity to get the wages that are currently on offer uh, because they want to reconsider their options in life. Like I, I hope that they succeed. But my concern is that after two or three more months of this, we arrive in September and it's just like, the bottom falls out, right? And like, we just had this big kind of weird hiccup and it would be better, more humane than what the Republican governors are doing. It's like, would be just tell people like, let them keep their extra UI checks, even if they go get a job. Like, just say like, you're going to get this check through September, but like, go do whatever. So that the more pessimistic, at least, of the unemployed former restaurant workers will just like, go say yes to the jobs that are on offer, and then we can sort of see where we stand. Because some of these better jobs, right, it's like, I know people who own, uh, you know, more than one restaurant outlet. If they have one that's downtown in D.C. right now, they are typically not bothering to reopen it because it's like not a great time to hire people. So they'll hire somebody for a position out in the neighborhood. And that's because it's hard to hire servers and cooks. But it also means that you don't hire like the manager. You don't hire the chef, right? So like an inability to make low-end hires blocks higher-end job creation as well. And it would be fine, except like we have all these unemployed people and it's not, it's just not like a super real solution to just say like, well, we hope the whole economy will transform by September 6th. I mean, to be clear, I don't think I'm saying that. I just, I feel like we've just focused so much on like restaurant workers and stuff and we kind of like miss this much bigger picture that's like, if I'm a massage therapist and I'm waiting for my job to come back, like, do you want me to actually switch industries? Right. If I'm a teacher, do you want me to go work at Target now? 
And like, that is not good for my family. That is not good for the economy. And so I do think to a certain extent, like we've sort of focused this so much constantly on like, just if these restaurant workers would stop wanting more than 213 an hour. But it is like a much bigger picture. Like, we don't know why construction jobs are not coming back necessarily. And so I do think like this conversation has focused so much on the low wage workers. Why will they not go back? But like, it is a much broader picture. And like, when I talk to people who are obviously on on kind of, you know, the more like advocating for worker side, what they will say is like, it's not only low wage workers kind of waiting out for something else. It's somebody waiting for a job that's like appropriate for them. If I'm, you know, driving an Uber even before the pandemic, maybe now my my rides are coming back, but they weren't in in at least in New York in in January. Yeah, well, I actually think this is a, a good point. Let's let's take a break here and let's talk about some stuff that's happening outside of the restaurant industry. Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. Your body is your own. That's why Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Today, lawmakers who oppose abortion are challenging Planned Parenthood. Affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. Planned Parenthood believes that health care is a basic human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies. They also work tirelessly to oppose the onslaught of new policies aimed at interfering with personal decisions best left to patients and their doctors. They won't give up and they won't back down. You can join Planned Parenthood in the fight to help make sure that the next generation can decide their own futures. The organization needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit plannedparenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. Your body is your own. That's why Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Today, lawmakers who oppose abortion are challenging Planned Parenthood. Affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. Planned Parenthood believes that health care is a basic human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies. They also work tirelessly to oppose the onslaught of new policies aimed at interfering with personal decisions best left to patients and their doctors. They won't give up and they won't back down. You can join Planned Parenthood in the fight to help make sure that the next generation can decide their own futures. The organization needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. So the other kind of like thing that I think we're we're seeing in the economy right now is that for a while you couldn't or it was considered inadvisable to go do lots of things that people normally do. And also every uh, people were spending more time at home. And we did a good job of supporting people's incomes. Like there wasn't the sort of cataclysmic economic collapse that people were fearing. So what happened was is people, people like bought a lot of furniture um, and exercise equipment and uh, video games and cars and things like that. And so the whole goods economy has now has like all these different kinds of 
shortages around in different places. I, I don't know if shortages even is the right word for it. Um, but it's like if you if you go to a store right now and you tell them like you'd like to buy a chair, they're going to tell you like you got to wait four months uh, for for shipping. Emily, like you did a funny story about the lumber situation. Which, which I think is good to to tell because it's just sort of emblematic, I think, of what's happening in all of the like physical object sort of sectors of the economy. Right. I mean, the lumber thing, I feel like is just I mean, A, it's really fun. Like I came across this via meme, but it also, like, as you say, it's really emblematic. So like basically what happens at the beginning of the pandemic, which you hinted at, is everybody kind of assumed the economy was going to slow down. Nobody was going to do anything. Um, And instead, people, you know, decided to build new homes. They decided to renovate, to add to a deck. And, you know, the lumber industry just seems like it was caught really flat footed. You know, they for years had not been doing well. Sawmills were shutting down, et cetera. Um, And then by the time they like caught up to what was going on, it was too late. And I will say prices have kind of slowed down a little bit in the past week. But, you know, kind of lumber was trading for a thousand board feet of lumber, which is kind of how you measure it, like two hundred to four hundred dollar range for the past several years. And now it's like well above a thousand dollars. And so what you see is people like, you know, I don't buy lumber. I will never build anything, probably. But a lot of people who do show up at Home Depot are suddenly discovering like, wait a minute, this I just wanted to add to my deck and I can't, or it's going to cost a ton more money than they thought, or people are trying to build houses and, and it's adding tens of thousands of dollars onto their houses. And I think this is a real example of, you know, the, the pandemic has kind of distorted our economy in all sorts of ways, including ones that, you know, who would have thought really that America would be like, well, I guess I'm going to sit home and, and add to my office, even though now, it, you know, it makes sense to a certain extent. It's worth pointing out that the Biden administration, at least, appears to believe that the kind of goods moving through the system problem is a a big hindrance point for the economy and be something that the federal government can meaningfully fix. They just unveiled a bunch of measures, which I wouldn't, even if I had been read up on them, wouldn't have the expertise to actually evaluate. Um, But the mere fact that they are focusing on the supply chain as a potential realm of executive action does indicate that they think that this is a problem, but a solvable one. Whereas I think it's very easy to kind of look at stories like the lumber story and just go, well, that was a thing that happened. And it you know, it was a funny mismatch, but like it isn't something that anyone can do anything about. The this does appear to be something that, you know, at least some of the economists in the White House are going, okay, we can we can do some things to make this less of a problem and to, you know, maybe prevent these weird commodity spikes from happening. Yeah, although I actually think what they rolled out today was a little odd. I mean, it, it seemed like what they rolled out today was addressing an issue that we worried about a lot in January of 2020, which was like, what if this epidemic in China disrupts production in China? And then because of our supply chain dependency on China, we're now not able to get the goods that we want. I mean, I think I I thought about that. People were talking about that. I think there may have been a story in Vox about it. There was this whole period of time when like Trump was trying to reassure the stock market by like telling people that this disease outbreak in China was like going to be fine. Um, But then obviously, like that's not what happened at all. 
Um, factories in China are operating, as far as I know, um, at roughly whatever capacity they were ever operating at. The problem, you know, you see this in lumber, but you see it in everything, is that because the Great Recession was such a catastrophe and it like it lasted so long, almost everybody who owns anything responded to the pandemic by saying, oh man, nobody's going to want to buy X for a while. And they started to shift production down, but like actually demand went up for all this stuff, right? And so the rental car companies, right? They were bankrupt. They didn't get a bailout. And their creditors, you know, who owned them were like, all right, we're going to sell this off for parts, right? And they just like dumped all these used cars into the market. Uh, But then it turned out that people bought lots of cars. It was a very robust market for cars. And now it's a robust market for rental cars. And so they're like scrambling to rebuild their fleets. The price of used cars has surged. You know, regular cars, um, they're still making them, but like because of uh, semiconductors, they like they can't scale up their production. The semiconductor people can't scale up production because it's like a five year timeline to build a factory. And it's the only thing you can do about it. And this is where I think the Fed, what they're doing is very important, right, is they are like white knuckling through the inflation issues and are like trying to signal to people who make things like it's fine, like keep making stuff, right? Like there's going to be a lot of demand, like make all the tables you can make. And they are expressing, and I do think you're seeing this in lumber, right? Like since since Emily's article came out, like the price has come down, like it's still high but it's down because like they're running those sawmills as fast as they can. Some people are like reconsidering, like, do I really need to build that deck or, you know, can I go do something else? And as more stuff opens up, it's like, you can say, okay, I'm going to spend my money on a vacation instead. Right. I mean, it does feel like, at least from my perspective, we really learned a lot about things that you you just assume that you order a couch from Wayfair or whatever, and it shows up. And like, we've really kind of learned in the past year, like, oh, hey, like supply chains are actually a thing. And like, this cannot just appear at my house. And it takes time. And, and with the lumber thing, like most of the people I talked to said, listen, this is probably at some point going to balance out. We just don't know when. And like, to be honest, it seems like maybe it's starting to balance out a little bit faster than everybody thought. But, you know, I also did have one guy who was like, the Fed needs to start raising interest rates right now. And like, I am not a Fed knower at all, but I definitely had a moment of like, I don't know if the answer is like making sawmills more afraid to invest, like after years of not investing, right? Like these things where it's semiconductors or sawmills or whatever, you know, it, it takes capital and it takes time to build factories and to really ramp up production on things. And I think sometimes... You know, when you're just on the consumer end, you don't think about the entire back end that is happening. And the pandemic certainly, you know, even with like chicken wings, whatever the heck is going on there, it's like, wait a minute. Like, I just don't think about those things in my day to day. I just go to the restaurant and they show up at my table. Oh, you don't think about chicken wing uh, prices all the time? So, I mean, one thing (laughs) that I do think it's always interesting to look at in this stuff is like, it's harder to look up than, than prices, but is like actual quantities, right? So I so I checked yesterday. 
uh, about chicken wings. And, you know, last month we did have an 8% year on year increase in broiler chicken eggs hatched. And so it takes, I guess, six to seven weeks for a broiler chicken to grow up. Uh, then they slaughter it. And then I guess there's some additional time in the, you know, dismembering and transshipment of, of the wings. Uh, but suffice it to say, like, it, it does seem like, like markets do work. Like in mm-hmm. some sense, just not not as instantaneously as one might like that, like the whole chicken thing is a biological process on some level. And so to respond to the higher prices by trying to get more eggs, then the eggs hatch, the chickens need to grow up. And like chickens are fast compared to sawmills um, or, or other things. And we're sort of watching that unfold. Right. And it's um. I don't know. It's just like things in the real world can't move with the speed of financial markets, right? Where Mm -hmm. like the price of oil can just like go up or down by insane amounts on a given day. But like drilling for oil, it's like somebody's got to go there. You have to set up the equipment. Like it just it 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 takes it takes time in the sort of frictionful world of reality. And we're kind of like we're just like living through those frictions. Right. I mean, can I ask a super stupid, I don't really know things about basic economics question, which is like, is this a capital P problem? Like, I think that there are some arguments, you know, in in some cases, like lumber, yes, obviously, like housing is very important. And as we've discussed a few weeks ago, to the extent that there's a housing crunch across the board, it is going to have obvious consequences for the people who are in danger of losing homes or can't find homes. But, you know, some stuff like chicken wings, I can understand a fairly philosophical uh, argument that like it's actually not the worst thing to be less alienated from the production process, right? That like Ooh. it might not be terrible for people to think a little bit that like chickens don't just materialize. They are actually there is an agriculture industry that has been designed to produce a lot of chickens very quickly at the expense of some other things like animal and human welfare. And, you know, that I think that there are some commodities for which obviously this kind of friction is going to have, you know, real consequences in people's lives. But I would want to know what's the argument that the existence of friction is itself going to be a problem for the actual human beings who are part of the economy? Well, I mean, you know, Not to make everything about chicken wings, right? But it's like, we would like to see unemployed workers getting jobs, not because they're being like coerced by the threat of poverty, but because employers are raising pay. But it's harder to raise pay to recruit staff when at the same time, your food costs are going up. Right. You know, so it's like, if you, if you can keep the hard costs low, and demand robust, then the extra revenue like flows back to human beings rather than sort of commodity uh, extractions. Now, it depends, right? So it's like if a boom in lumber prices ultimately leads to like people getting jobs in sawmills, um, like that's probably good. Like, you know, like manufacturing employment has a lot of like attractive properties compared to service sector work, things like that. 
But if it just creates like a windfall, right? Like the car situation has just like arbitrarily generated large sums of money to people who happen to own cars that they weren't particularly using all that much. And then like they could go sell them. And, you know, it's like good for you, right? But it would actually be better to like have the travel economy up and running and creating opportunities for for people to to do things i think um but i don't know emily you're you're, emily's more philosophical (laughs) (laughs) i don't think i mean i will say like specific to at least the lumber shortage like the sense i got was that the the wealth was really not being shared so like to get very basic, lumber and timber are two different things. Timber is like the log in the forest, and and the timber people are not making money, right? And there's a bunch of different reasons for that. In Canada, there is a beetle. In Oregon, there is some conservation issues. In the South, there's just too much timber. But, like, the thing that I heard a lot was that... You know, A, people were nervous about building up their sawmills or whatever, because, again, you don't know if this goes away, but that this really was not like trickling down to the Canadian logger who's famous on TikTok. You know what I mean? But how about the lumber trader Twitter guy? The lumber trader Twitter guy is just like enjoying his Twitter fame, to be honest. I'm sure he's making a ton of, you know, he's making money whether or not it goes up or down. He's hedging. So I see him all the time now. He's my new best Twitter friend. Uh, Yeah, that's what I'm saying. We've got whole new, whole new levels of social media fame. Right. I mean, there's so many memes. It's I have my new TikTok lumber trader guy or not. No, a logger guy, I guess that, you know, now TikTok lets me know every time he does a new video. But I do think like more, you know, seriously, like we do want businesses, as we said before, to like be able to plan. And so as much as this stuff is like a problem, it's like even if I'm selling chicken wings, I just want to know how much the chicken wings are going to cost me month to month because it's really hard to plan for the next six months or year. Same thing with like a rental car. You know, it's just like I think we want businesses as much as we want people to be able to like plan their lives and their expenses. And so that's where this stuff, at least in my mind, sort of plays out. I mean, I I think that that's right. I mean, my sort of like second order concern about all of this is that I don't want macro policymakers to like lose patience with everything by September or October and say like, oh, we've had all this inflation, like it's time to go because, you know, let's say like we're reasonably optimistic, right? I mean, 500,000 jobs like we had last month, like that's not terrible. And you could have 500,000 more jobs, uh, you know, May, June, July, August. So, okay, you're you're chunking along. Uh, but then, you know, half the country has already lost their unemployment insurance and the other half coming uh, in the fall. And those people are going to need to get jobs. And so even if job growth accelerates at that point, like it won't be instantaneous and like we're going to need the fed and they say they're going to do this but like we're going to need the fed to stay the course not just like until september but for several months past september right because at that point even if you started getting million job months um you know you might need six of them right and you need to work out these supply chain kinks uh the biden administration i think you know wants to get some other stuff done legislatively. And I just like, I kind of, I I hope it all works out in the end, but it makes me, 
it makes me a little bit nervous that we're going to see a kind of collapse of morale um, or a, a failure of, of nerve rather than get to, I guess, what I would call sustainable full employment um, and to, I don't know, bring in a, a subject of, of Dara interest, right? Like once upon a time, I, I think in the misty months of 2007, there was an idea that in a low unemployment economy, the business constituency for immigration reform would be a real thing. Because beyond kicking people off their unemployment insurance, like an actual way to increase labor supply is to let the many, many people around the world who would love to come to the United States and, you know, build your house or bus tables at your restaurant, like actually go do that, right? But you can't, I, I think it's hard to make that argument when there's like a buffer stock of 8 million unemployed Americans, but hopefully, like those people will be getting jobs soon. Yeah, I mean, the kind of fundamental truth of this is that, uh, unlike the countries that you know some pro business Republicans have pointed to as having like the right kind of immigration system, like Canada, there isn't a whole lot of flexibility built into the system. Uh, the same number of work visas are allotted every year, and you know have been since time immemorial for the most part. And so this runs into the question of how much does any given constituency want immigration reform versus the extremely ambitious, you know, infrastructure spending package and like, can you somehow attempt to do both? And I think that, you know, no one who's being super realistic about this believes that Congress has the appetite to tackle both of those as like big legislative priorities, you know, which is why it's getting caught up in this discussion of like, can you reconciliation your way to it? But there, there is a little bit of flexibility built into the system for work visas that isn't usually used. There are, there is a little bit of a like presidential safety valve on H2B low skill visas. And the Biden administration has actually allotted some of those discretionarily for Central America, which indicate, which is a very strong indication that this is not a job market policy. This is an immigration policy. Uh, and my understanding is that even that was a little bit like, you know, to expand more visas under the current system is a heavier lift with like labor and workers' rights advocates than to create a system where there's a little bit more power for individual workers. So I'm not sure that you can do that to a greater extent without kind of creating more trouble politically than you're actually giving the economy, especially because you can't do that. You know, it's it's still a pretty low number of visas that are that are safety valvable. But one thing that I think has become pretty clear empirically since 2007, and I don't, this isn't explicitly acknowledged much in the political debate, but like probably if you press people, they would come up with something akin to this. Like the idea of a business, of a work visa has always been you're here. And then the minute that your work visa expires, you leave and you're perfectly happy. And then maybe you try to apply for another visa if you can and come back. That's not really how people live. Like people who want to come to the United States want to be able to like come and leave on their own terms. They're not necessarily okay with I'm going to be here for like exactly 10 months or exactly two years and then I'm out. And so the idea of letting more people into the country just to plug holes in the labor market you know, raises questions about like, okay, but how are we then dealing with them as people? And it maybe isn't the worst thing in the world that the Biden administration and or Congress aren't seriously considering a plan that would just kind of assume that the minute that, you know, a visa expires 
or the native born unemployment rate hits a certain level that everybody who was in the country to fill jobs just disappears. Do we know, and this might be just kind of too far afield, but do we know if people like left the United States during this? Like people came here to get jobs and then the pandemic hits and we're like, I got to go home. Um, Because travel restrictions were such a thing pretty much everywhere. My gut is that that was not a substantial problem. Like, Mm -hmm. yes, there's a pandemic here, but there's also a pandemic a bunch of other places. As a matter of fact, something that was really surprising in 2020 was, you know, because the economy in the U.S. collapsed so quickly, you know, a lot of observers expected that remittances were going to, you know, drop accordingly. And they did briefly. And then they zoomed back up because as bad as things like... It, there there were some stories about this, like people who were unemployed in the U.S. scraping together what they could to send money home because as bad as things were for them here, they were even worse for their family members. All right. Let's take a break. Do, do a little white paper. Change of pace. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right, $25 a month every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. All right, we have today, uh, I, I don't know about this paper, <laughs> but it's fun as somebody who enjoys Twitter. Um, this is Thomas Fujiwara, Karsten Mueller, and Carlos Schwartz, The Effect of Social Media on Elections, Evidence from the United States. Um, they are trying to answer the question, you know, do your tweets uh, matter? They argue that they do. Um, and that the fact that the tweeting population is well to the left of the U.S. center um, helped contribute to uh, a decline in Donald Trump's vote share in 2016 and 2020. Um, this is hard to study because you can't have any true randomization. Uh, but so they instrument the rollout of Twitter at the 2007 South by Southwest Festival. Uh, and they show, I mean, there's some interesting research here about the history of Twitter that I think is maybe more convincing than the the main result. Uh, But basically, there was, um, I don't want to say random, but there was idiosyncratic variation in like who was at South by Southwest, who was following the South by Southwest Twitter account, um, and that there was persistence that counties that had more people following South by Southwest on Twitter in 2007 continue to have more Twitter usage today. So they interpret that as like an exogenous shock to Twitter usage. And they show that those South by Southwest heavy counties have unusually low uh, Trump voting uh, in, in 2016 and 2020. And so your tweets have changed the world. And thank you, everybody, for your service. You know, keep on keep on posting. I will say I was super, super, super skeptical of this paper uh, when we decided to do it because it seems 
you know, a lot of things have happened between 2007 and now. (laughs) And there is certainly an argument that like, one of the things that the authors point out in this paper is that, you know, nothing pre-2016 was predicted by this kind of exogenous shock in Twitter. So you could make the counter-argument that, yeah, okay, but we're, we appear to be in the midst of a fundamental realignment of, you know, certainly educated middle-class voters who are extremely likely to be overrepresented among this kind of South by Southwest early adopter right. and the people who were influenced by them cohort. But I will say that, like, I'm, I was a little bit more persuaded than I thought because it's not just that pre-2016 elections didn't show any variation. It's also that in 2016, 2018, 2020, Senate and House elections did not appear to be influenced by the share of people who were using Twitter in the post-2007 South by period. And that indicates to me that maybe there is really something here, not for presidential elections in particular, which is what the authors of this paper interpret it to mean, but for Donald Trump, who had a very well-known relationship with Twitter and posting on Twitter and whose use of Twitter became kind of synecdoche for a lot of Republicans who were willing to hold their nose and, and support him, but also for some of the kind of never Trump Republicans that like the fact that that if you were on Twitter, it was absolutely impossible to avoid whatever Donald Trump happened to be thinking about that day does seem like it might have turned off a critical mass of people who don't care that much about politics, but kind of wanted to make the presidency boring again in 2020. And so were less likely and, and weren't able to cast that out of their minds as easily as people who weren't on the bird app. I mean, to be completely honest, I read through this a lot last night. I read it again this morning and I was like, I'm having a hard time getting from A to Z here. Like, (laughs) just full stop. But I will say, like, just like beyond this paper, I sure hear a lot of people on Twitter saying that they feel like they influence things. Right. Like the whole idea is like the loud voices on Twitter tweet a lot, then policymakers see that, and then whatever, they influence policy. And so, like, this paper didn't feel as far afield to me, I think, as maybe I thought it would, because, like, okay, fair enough. But, like, that being said, as you said, Dara, like, clearly there's a certain crowd of person who is going to be paying attention to South by Southwest, and that makes a whole lot, you know, like, it's hard to decide what really caused what here. Yeah, I mean, I do think... (sighs) There's something odd about the assertion, the the way they construct the exogeneity of this shock by showing that it's not correlated with prior voting behavior, Mm -hmm. uh, because we... I think we have like a stronger theoretical basis for believing that Trump's um, strong elevation of certain immigration and trade themes, you know, produced an educational realignment that is very plausibly just the same as the alignment of who pays attention to things like South by Southwest. And then, you know, just like all all we're really seeing here is like what we already knew, which Mm -hmm. was an acceleration of of education polarization. I'm not saying that's all that's going on. I mean, the study's not like super duper sloppy about this kind of thing, but it, it, it makes you wonder. I mean, I also do think that Dara's points though, just like about Trump's tweets are important. I mean, it's um, it sounds so crazy now that we're like five months into an administration where the president's Twitter feed is very banal. It, it seems weird to say that, like, for a period of years, 
uh, a candidate and then the president's tweets were an often high-level item on the news agenda. But, you know, you look at something like the reaction to... You know, some of the more moderate positions that Biden has staked out on, you know, like changing asylum policy and, you know, things like that. And lots of normal-ish people just like respond so differently to policies that are like small C conservative in their implications and that are rolled out in what seems like a professional government-y kind of way than from things that seem like it's a crazy person shooting from the hip. That like people give a fair amount, I mean, a deference to like partisans that they support, but also just to processes that strike them as being how serious things should be done, right? You really saw this with Afghanistan, actually, I think, an even more clear-cut example, where when Trump would just, like, fire up the bird app and be like, we're getting the troops home, a lot of people were like, whoa, buddy. Um, And when Biden, like, had some contentious Oval Office meetings, and then there were some TikTok stories, and then there was, like, a briefing by the National Security Advisor, uh, a lot of the same people were like, yeah, I don't know. Like, I, I guess that's a, like, what do I even know about military <laughs> tactics in Afghanistan? It seems like they had a lot of meetings and, and came up with the right decision. And, you know, Trump tweeting was like obviously an important part of his primary campaign. But like, I just think very plausibly was just like a really counterproductive way for like the president of the United States to engage with people and just like hot take always made him seem really unhinged um, in a way that like, it's not like the unique genius of Joe Biden to like make yourself seem like you're working on something. Uh, But you know, it's a good idea. But I do think also, I mean, now we live in a world without Donald Trump on Twitter. And you do sort of see the power that, like, it really was the combination, right? Like, he had a blog. The blog didn't even last a month. And I think, like, we probably also, beyond this, like, need to think about the fact that, like, Facebook and Twitter really could be, like, actually, you need to go away. And he really did. Like, it was a very unique combination that, Mm -hmm. like, if Donald Trump were still on Twitter, I think the Biden presidency would probably look a little bit different. The controversies of day to day to be different. And we, you know, I mean, would he still have the ability to command at least some of the news cycle, even being out of the White House? But absolutely. Right. Whereas as was like my hot historical take is that the Trump era ends on, you know, January 8th when he gets indefinitely Mm -hmm. banned from Twitter, because you really did see just immediately that his ability to command the political oxygen went totally out the window. So maybe a Donald Trump who is a little less keen on defending his supporters at all costs and doesn't turn January 6th into a thing is a much bigger problem for Joe Biden right now. Mm-hmm. Or a useful foil for Biden. I mean, it's not it, it's it's not totally clear to me what the like net impact of reduced Trump Twitter visibility is on different kinds of things, right? Because like with some of this stuff You know, I mean, I feel like Republicans have 
on one level, like regain some of their political footing, right? Like they don't talk a lot about their opposition to Biden's more popular ideas. They just quietly obstruct them in Congress. They try to fill the news agenda with other stuff where like they want very conventional patriotic education. And, you know, Democrats are trying to teach you critical race theory. And like, that's a good conversation for them. I think Trump actually filling that void would be more likely to like message this stuff in a bad way, Mm -hmm. right? Like he's not, he's just like a kind of sloppy guy, I think, who did not, you know, thread the needle well. He never did a good job of like, you know, like holding a straight face and being like, we're really concerned about the impact of crime on communities of color. You know, like there's like, there's like an art to like, wedge issuing that like i think trump really did not master um and you know having him down as a messenger i think is like probably beneficial to republicans i mean there's a reason why like they will jump up and down and yell and scream about the evils of social media companies when they want to but like they're actually very restrained about trump being uh, off social media yeah i don't know All of this is a good point. Um, The idea that this is a sui generis Trump thing is not what the authors of this paper are trying to say. They are trying to say that Twitter is something similar to if with a smaller effect than like the extent to which watching Fox News moves people to the right or reading the Washington Post moves them to the left. I I think all of us all of us right now are not super persuaded that that's the uh, case. But I guess we'll see if we'll we'll see the next time Donald Trump is not on the presidential ballot, whether or not Twitter is still a meaningful mover of public opinion. Well, I also I also want to say, like, the reason I'm I'm skeptical, right, because I'm I'm sort of a believer in, in the Fox News effect. But like the thing about Fox is that it was started by Roger Ailes, who's not just conservative, but like was a conservative political operative. So. He, I think, is like plausibly like trying to do programming that will have electoral impacts. Twitter is not a um, venue for message discipline, right? Like if you ask people, now, probably if you could get like the smartest message testers to like make every normie liberal on Twitter like deliver talking points, like that might have that kind of effect. But like that's not what's going on. I'd love to see someone try to study the impact of Twitter on attitude change, though, right? Because the flip side of that is that Twitter is a great way to take like fairly radical left wing ideas and present them to people who are at the 70th percentile of progressiveness as opposed to the 99th, right? Like, intuitively, I feel like there's a lot of that on Twitter. Right. Like not taking ideas from 40 to 70, but taking ideas from like five to 30. Seems like what Twitter is for. Right. Like for for better or worse, like eccentric, weird things that would be kept off that like gatekeepers don't want to deal with get voiced on Twitter and spread around. Right. But then that I just feel like that immediately then goes to like these three guys on Twitter who are saying X, Y, Z. And then the other three guys on Twitter are like, we must pick at this exact thing. And then we like devolve (laughs) into the Twitter hell that is every day. This is like super far afield from the paper, but I do want to take this opportunity to give a shout out to uh, the Internet in general, because I am seeing a lot like a good amount more knee jerk skepticism of pieces that 
pull out, you know, random people's tweets as evidence of some kind of social media (laughs) phenomenon or backlash. And as a big believer in the fact that uh, everything that someone thinks of as clickbait is a rational response to what people want to read or consume, if people can successfully starve the social media says XYZ from attention when it's not talking about individuals or particular groups with powerful followings, then we're probably going to be able to move past that. That's so optimistic. I mean, do we remember Ellie Kempergate uh, just last week? <laughs> okay, that's fair. It's like that's entirely fair. driven by Twitter nutpicking. That's fair. <laughs> um <laughs> Who knows? Um, okay, but with that, I think I think we should should wrap this episode up. We're getting into the official loopy period uh, of the day. Um, <laughs> yeah. So thanks, Emily, for joining us. Uh, Thank thanks, you. as always, to our sponsors. Thanks to our producer, Eric Chinakis. Nudes will be back on Friday. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com.